We are in a period right now where here in the United States and around the planet, great numbers of everyday citizens are pushing back against concentrated, monopolized, institutionalized power. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Eric Liu wrote the book, You're More Powerful Than You Think, A Citizen's Guide to Making Change Happen. He says people across the political spectrum are reclaiming power. In today's show, he lays out the strategies of reform and revolution. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Black Lives Matter, the Occupy Movement, the Tea Party, and many other groups have developed in recent years as a response to the age we're living in, an age of epic political turbulence. Eric Liu directs the Aspen Institute's Citizenship and American Identity Program and founded Citizen University. He's spent a career practicing and teaching civic power. In today's episode, he uses examples from the right and the left to reveal the core laws of power. He highlights what movements have been most effective, explains active citizenship, and talks about why joining a cause digitally by liking it on Facebook or retweeting it isn't enough. He speaks with the Aspen Institute's Elliot Gerson as part of the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series. Here's Gerson. It's really a fascinating book about power and those who think they don't have power and also power and those who thought they didn't have power but end up having actually extraordinary power. It is, it's a theoretical book but it's also a highly practical book and it describes unequal power status uh, with really, I think, brutal clarity but at the same time manages ultimately to be quite an optimistic book. Uh, and in these days, uh, that's very special, an even inspiring book. And it clearly is a very timely book. Uh, we are living through global revolts against those perceived to have power by those who feel that they don't have power and that they're left out. And finally, I think, and importantly, it is a what I'd call a multi-partisan book in that it talks about the Tea Party, but it talks about Occupy, Black Lives Matter, but also alt-right movements, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Brexit, uh, the Maidan, uh, the Indignados, and of course, the Feel the Burners, and also the Trump train. And now I might even add some of the sentiment that we saw with the vote leading, very shocking vote, to a hung parliament in the United Kingdom. So let me just start, Eric, and ask you not how you wrote the book, but why you chose to write this particular book. You actually named in, in good part uh, why I wrote this book. Uh, I think we're living in an extraordinary time right now. Uh, and it's not just these last 120 whatever days, it's not just since the November elections here in the United States. Um, it really, if you rewind back over the course of a half decade or more, um, we are in a period right now where uh, here in the United States and around the planet, uh, great numbers of everyday citizens are pushing back against concentrated, monopolized, institutionalized power. Uh, and some of the movements that you listed 
uh, are evidence of that. Uh, and I think one of the things that is so striking about a time like this, uh, it's happening in ways that are cross-ideological, whether you're talking about Bernie Sanders folks or Donald Trump folks. Uh, it's happening in ways that are um, cross-cultural, whether you're talking about the Arab Spring uh, or Brexit uh, or, or any of these movements like Black Lives Matter or the Tea Party or the $15 Now movement here in the United States. What they all have in common, as disparate as they are, um, is they are, in some ways, the natural, uh, indeed even predictable result of several decades now in which wealth, power, clout, reputation have all been concentrating into fewer and fewer hands uh, around the planet. And uh, when you get that kind of concentration at a certain point, you get this, what I capitalize, as a great pushback, right? Uh, and so I felt like um, these were the times that we're in, and both through my work here at Aspen and uh, a related nonprofit that I run, Citizen University, um, I get the opportunity to work with a lot of people across the spectrum who are in the middle of this. And I had sensed that, you know, A, this was happening, but that B, while there is this great global primal screen ha scream happening right now, um, there are so many people who don't know what to do after you scream, who don't know how to make that pivot from protest, complaint, marching, knocking things over, uh, to actually making the change that you want to see. Right? And, uh, uh, and so that's one part of the answer is just the moment that we're in. And the other part is just, uh, you know, I think this is something that uh, we all have in common here, is just a recognition that in a time like this, when you take stock of what you know and what you've had, the capital that you have. I've worked in government, I've worked in the media, I've worked in politics, in civic life, both locally in Seattle and nationally here in DC. Um, I realize I've got this little pile of capital, of, of relationship capital, ideas capital, know-how capital, right? Um, and in a moment like this, we are all called to ask ourselves, what are we gonna do with that pile? Are we gonna hoard it or are we gonna circulate it? And to me, it's a very simple binary. And I said, I'm a circulator. And one way that I'm good at circulating is, is writing books and using them to kind of create conversations like this. So that's, that's what I wanted to do. Well, we're delighted that you do. And uh, you know, let, me, let me just start with a, a question. I said the book is both theoretical and very practical. And maybe on the theoretical side, you know, what, what is power? And you, know, you, you talk about uh, what you call the three laws of power. And if you could just set the stage there, and then we can move into some specific examples and applications. So when I talk about citizen power, it's worth unpacking both halves of that term, actually. When I say citizen, I'm not talking only, or indeed even primarily, about <laughs> documentation status under the immigration laws of the United States. I'm talking about a deeper, more capacious conception an ethical notion of what it means to be a citizen. Uh, you know, basically a participant, a member of the body, a pro-social contributor to the community. Now here in the United States, that membership in the body has a certain set of cultural and creedal um, dimensions to it that are very specifically American, right? And, and, and it's important to be fluent in that. But, uh, but number one, I don't mean just United States citizens. Power I define simply as, this way, as a capacity to ensure that others do as you would like them to do. And you know, you hear the chuckling in the room, and some people are very kind of, wow, that's kind of a. We're all thinking about how our children get us to do things. Well, yes, uh, or how people who have the kind of temperament of children, you know, get us to do things um, uh, uh, to, to, that we want to do. But in either case, I think the the notion is this capacity is a thing that we are often, as Americans in particular, in a culture that is so small d democratic, uh, where we like to pretend to equality of all kinds. 
um, we're uncomfortable being that nakedly candid about what power is. It's me trying to get you to do something that I want you to do, right? But let's be honest, as you joke, I mean, in every circle of relationship, family, workplace, neighbors, uh, we're always as humans trying to do this, right? And, and power in civic life is how we apply that capacity toward questions of common and uh, public concern. Uh, and power in civic life takes many different forms. There are many sources of power that are worth naming and unpacking, as I try to do in the book. Money power, ideas power, people power, social norms power, power of state action, the power of simple force and violence when it comes to that, right? Um, and, and then you think about what are the conduits through which these various sources of power, forms of power flow? Institutions, networks, narratives, organizations of different kinds, right? When you start combining these sources of power and these conduits of power, that adds up to what we think of colloquially as the power structure, right? But most of the time, we just think colloquially about it. We don't actually unpack the power structure. And, um, and so, you know, in this book, I try to lay out three core laws of civic power um, that help frame up not only the strategies that I describe here and the stories that I tell of different activists and uh, engaged citizens around the world, but just help us kind of have a mental framework for this. So the laws quickly are these. Number one, power compounds, it concentrates. That's just a basic law of life and nature, right? The rich get richer. Those who have clout get more clout. Those who have some reputation tend to get more reputation. Um, and, and that is the nature of kind of compounding systems when left to themselves. Uh, in, in a similar sense, powerlessness compounds. Uh, and, and this is, uh, whether you take a gospel approach to this uh, in thinking about the gospel of Matthew, or you take a complex adaptive system scientific approach to it, uh, it's the same lesson, power compounds. Law number two, power justifies itself. So at every turn, incumbent institutions and individuals who are holders of power are always spinning narratives about why it is that way and why it ought to be that way, right? In a different age, it was language about divine right and, uh, and, and the blessings of the gods. Uh, today, we have various secular forms of that kind of royalism, whether in economic theory. Uh, in a different time, uh, there were notions about white supremacy that were baked into our public policy. That was a, a just-so story about why certain people should rule and other people were not fit to rule. Uh, still today in our public life and in business, uh, there are narratives and such stories about why men are cut out for certain kinds of leadership and hard-nosed work in the corporate environment and not women, right? Um, and, and all of these uh, are stories and, and fairy tales, and I, I don't mean to minimize them. I mean, fairy tales matter to humans, right? We, we believe in them. Uh, but they are, in most cases, or in many cases, stories before they are fact. Um, so if all we had were these first two laws, that power is always compounding into these monopolized situations, and that power is always justifying itself, you would get into a pretty terrible doom loop of stuckness and being ground down while being told why you should enjoy being ground down, right? Um, uh, uh, and what breaks us out of that doom loop is law number three, which is simply this. Power is infinite. Power is infinite in civic life. And I know this is a very counterintuitive thing to a lot of people, right? I don't mean when I say that, that all people are infinitely powerful or that all of us can be infinitely wealthy um, or that at a wave of a wand we can make anything happen like that. But what I do mean is that in civic life, unlike, say, in a physical system, right? The laws of physics tell us that if someone in this room is going to get more heat or energy, Someone else in this room has to get less. So it's not a zero-sum game. It's not a zero-sum game, right? In, in civic life, I can generate brand new power out of thin air through the magic act of organizing. If I organize, if I learn to 
give a public speech, if I learn to frame a set of ideas, if I learn how to use social media to create a meme that mobilizes other people, I haven't diminished by one bit your ability to do these things, right? I haven't taken away anything from your uh, inherent capacity. I've just added to the net amount of power now circulating in this ecosystem. Our relative balance will have shifted, and that's part of the jostling of democracy. Uh, but this notion that power is infinite is a reminder, quite simply, that we are able, in situations that seem incredibly stuck and frozen uh, in deep inequity, uh, to change that, uh, that, that equation. And I think that's one of the most fundamental um, truths of civic life that we are seeing play out all around the United States today and all around the world. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, exercising active citizenship and using power to improve society. Eric Liu, author of You're More Powerful Than You Think, is speaking with Elliot Gerson. Gerson is Executive Vice President of Policy and Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Later in the show, Liu uses examples from gay rights activists to explain how a movement can be most effective. And he suggests one way to make an impact, run for office. Now, back to Lou's conversation with Elliot Gerson. You know, you, you, when you were talking about the second law of power, you mentioned powerlessness. And uh, one phrase you used in here, I think, was that we have a mass epidemic of powerlessness. What, what do you mean by that? Look, we, we are, again, just let's focus on the United States. We're at the tail end of three, three and a half decades of some of the most severe radical inequality and concentration of wealth uh, that we've seen in the United States since just before the Great Depression, right? Um, and that has left millions of people not only um, economically either sliding backwards or, or struggling twice as hard to stay stagnant, um, but it's led millions of people to basically stop believing in the possibility that they could change anything, to stop believing in the possibility that they might be able to unrig what feels like a rigged game, right? And I think. Um, as with any kind of helplessness, this is a learned thing um, that our circumstances have begun to teach us. And again, what I found heartening, the, the, the silver lining in the election for me, in the election of Donald Trump, was that you had millions of people show up who hadn't been showing up. You had millions of people participating and deciding uh, that there was here a vehicle uh, for them to actually break out of that helplessness and powerlessness um, in just the same way. Uh, in the, in since, since Donald Trump was inaugurated, you have millions more, actually, uh, people in this country now stepping onto the field of civic life for the first time or the first time in a long time to resist this administration and its agenda, right? But you have this moment where people who had felt completely checked out and ground down um, deciding, no, I can, in fact, uh, ch change the game. You know, the other thing that I found remarkable, and I think you even used the word stunning with respect to this, is is y you quoted someone making the argument, and apparently empirically it, it plays out, that the more people feel powerless, the more, in many cases, they believe inequality is fair and legitimate. Mm. How is that conceivable? So this is a really counterintuitive uh, uh, social psychology finding. And it's contested even within the field of social psychology. But it, uh, a, a guy named Rob Willer at Stanford and a bunch of colleagues of his at other universities did this landmark study uh, on what they call system justification theory. Um, and, and the notion is, as it sounds, that when you are um, ground down on the short end uh, of an, an inequality equation, um, 
our instinct as humans to resolve this cognitive dissonance, to basically be able to feel good about ourselves in spite of uh, our manifestly bad circumstances, takes over. Uh, and we begin to generate stories in our own minds, in our own hearts, uh, about basically, well, I guess I deserve it. Or I guess those folks who have, they really deserve it. Um, and if I had worked as hard as they did, and so people, it, it's far easier for people to believe that um, they somehow deserve this than, uh, and, and that they could perhaps change it if they worked a little harder than it is to believe the alternative, which is the game has been so rigged against you and you've been, you have been reduced to such a pawn that you have no dignity or identity or voice. Right? That's a very hard thing to bear psychologically. Um, and I think, again, the, 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 the primal scream of Trump voters uh, was testament to that. Right? Um, the primal scream of people involved now in Black Lives Matter is testament to that. Um, the, the sense at a certain point um, that I'm going to break out of that, um, that, that learned helplessness or that justifying the way things are, um, and I'm going to start changing things. But it is a very, um, you know, particularly in the United States, this is a heavy burden to bear. Because we live, talk about narratives, we live in a society that is all about rugged individualism. We live in a society where um, we assign both uh, you know, where, where good things happen and bad things happen only because of individual will or individual failure. Uh, we are kind of blind or illiterate or mute in this country uh, about talking about collective or structural forces. Structural or luck. Or luck, exactly. You know, and so, uh, yeah, that's, that's particularly so, here. So before Eric Liu wrote about power, one of the more famous quotes about power and writers about power was probably Lord Acton who wrote that uh, something like, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You don't agree with that. I, I don't agree wholly with that. I, I actually think, uh, you know, when you hear that line, you, you of course picture all kinds of people from history and present day, but I, I actually think it's, uh, there are so many counterexamples, and one of course is the person at the pantheon of my civic religion, Abraham Lincoln, um, for whom absolute power not only did not corrupt, absolute power uh, deepened uh, the, the his moral complexity, uh, deepened the suffering uh, and the disunion in his own heart about how he was trying to hold together the union, right? Um, I actually think rather than saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, um, the, the way that I put it is power reveals character. Power reveals character, right? So um, if, if you are by nature advantage-taking, somewhat sociopathic, and, and, and you are given great power, um, it will be quite revealed to all those around you, right? Um, uh, and yes, it will be amplified as well, uh, because it, it's a feedback loop of, of temptation and, and indulgence. Uh, but uh, I, I think in the United States, there are plenty of Lincolns. Uh, there are plenty of people, uh, you know, it, it, when you think about local government, when you think about leadership, people who run community foundations, people who run United Ways, people who run businesses, uh, who have in relative terms in their communities great power, right? And yet are not wielding it in sociopathic ways. Um, I, I think, uh, but, but what this does underscore actually is this shorthand formula that I have um, to sound quasi-scientific here, which is uh, P plus CH equals CI. Uh, by which I mean basically this, power plus character equals citizenship. Right? So to be and engage an effective citizen, it is not enough just to be fluent in power and what it is and how it flows and how you wield it. You have to couple that fluency and power with a grounding, with a, with a grounding in character. 
uh, with a moral sense, right? If you only have the fluency and power but no moral sense, you do end up being sociopathic. If you only have the highly attuned, finely grained moral sense and notion of character, but you have no idea how to get anything done or no idea how to move systems, then you were kind of just indulging yourself in the corner, right? Um, and, and so it is kind of the fusion of those that, uh, that, that makes for uh, effective citizenship at every scale of life. I'm not just talking about US politics, national politics. I'm talking about your neighborhood and, and your community. Eric Liu founded Citizen University and runs the Aspen Institute Citizenship and American Identity Program. He's being interviewed by Elliot Gerson, an executive vice president at the Institute. Later this month, don't miss the Aspen Ideas To Go podcast takeover. We've asked speakers from the Aspen Ideas Festival to take over the show during the festival. Their mission is to interview festival presenters of their choice. They've chosen scientists, journalists, doctors, and many others. Don't miss these fascinating conversations. Now, back to Eric Liu and Elliot Gerson. Here's Gerson. Let's just get back to Lord Acton's uh, uh, concept of corruption, though. You, you use some fairly strong language in the book. Uh, I, I think you actually call American democracy today uh, or, or, or American, yeah, I think actually it was American democracy you describe as sclerotic and corrupt. You, re, you believe those words are appropriate? I, I believe that national politics has become sclerotic and corrupt. Yes, it is sclerotic in how, I mean, I, I don't even need to tell you. I mean, the, the, the ways in which uh, the, the, not only the two-party system, but this particular setup of this particular Congress uh, is unable to do anything um, uh, for the good of the country in a long-term thinking way. Uh, but the corruption piece is about the way in which, you know, 150 years ago, all politics, kind of all the tributaries of politics flowed back into the topic of the slave power, right? That's at the end of the day what it was all about. And I think today all these tributaries all flow at the end of the day to the money power. Like our politics is warped by money in ways that we've we've just take as take for granted now, right? Um, and this again is something you have to give Not a little we bit. We take of, for granted. We assume it's part of American liberty. We 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 do. Well, yes, that that's that's true. Uh, but when Donald Trump was a candidate, one of the things that I would give him some credit for, and I think again why he was able to break through uh, with, with a sense of his quote fake authenticity was that he was willing to call the system on this fact. And he was willing to say, when challenged in this kind of traditional political gotcha way, you used to give money to Democrats. And he would just say nakedly, you bet I did, because I wanted to buy Democrats, I wanted to buy Republicans, I wanted to buy independents, I wanted to buy whoever I wanted to buy, right? And people looked into that and were like, yeah, he's naming a truth, right? He is describing how so much of this happens. And, um, and, and so I think that is um, you know, a thing that, uh, that we have to reckon with if we're going to now, money power isn't the only kind of power, right? And again, we are in the way, we are in a great bow wave of people power um, uh, and social norms power that I think can over time, uh, as it did a century ago in this country during the, the last Gilded Age, uh, curb the full reach of money power. Uh, but it takes us all waking up. Well, in a minute, people are going to start calling me a liar when that word has been tossed around a lot recently because <laughs> I said a few minutes ago that this book is is uh, actually, despite its candor, 
and and brutal description of of what what Eric sees as the state of American democracy. It's also very optimistic, inspiring. So let's shift a little bit for a minute, and I'd like to ask you to give us some examples that make this book ultimately so optimistic, and examples of how you prescribe uses of power to to alter this uh, uh, equation. Mm. And let me start by just asking, what's so special about tomatoes? Mm. Okay, so um, what Elliot's referring to is the prologue of the book. Um, I tell a very simple story um, of the tomato pickers of Immokalee, Florida, southwest Florida, where uh, most of the United States tomato crop is, is grown. And uh, some of you may know the story and know, know the situation down there, but uh, for, for many decades, um, this was an economy where these tomato pickers, uh, largely migrant farm workers from Central and South America, um, were laboring in a system completely off the radar screen of, of the national media, laboring in a system that was essentially somewhere in between indentured servitude and slavery. Like, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, right? I mean, they, they're, they're, their wages were stolen, they were locked in pens, they were physically, emotionally, sexually abused, um, and it was just, uh, and, and nobody paid attention. Right? And it was going like this for many, many years uh, until starting in like the early 1990s, um, some of these tomato pickers, some of these workers decided to remember law number three and decided to actually meet up in a warehouse after their shift. Um, and in twos and threes and then fives and tens and then larger numbers started to say, we've got to do something together. Instead of just being atomized, exploited individuals here, just trying to keep our heads down, we've got to start doing something together. And they did. And this, from that moment in like 1991, um, and that initial organizing in a, either in a warehouse or a church, um, began this cascade of organizing that started first with them basically saying to their growers, we're not gonna pick anymore until you provide some basics like heat shelters during the middle of the day, until you start promising that you're gonna actually pay the wages that you say that you're gonna pay. Um, and so then they got that. And then they said, okay, let's flex a little bit more muscle. Um, and they continue to organize for better, better wages and working conditions. And then they started thinking more systemically and they realized it wasn't just the, the growers who were exploiting them, that the actual equation of power here, if you expanded your lens, was the buyers, the supermarkets, the fast food uh, chains, um, who were putting pressure on the growers to drive costs down to zero, right? Um, and so then they started working uh, with the local activists and getting local journalists to come and start uh, organizing and getting introduced to people to start shaming and putting pressure on the Taco Bells and the Safeways and the what have you, right? Uh, and start saying, do you want to buy tomatoes from, from slaveholders in the 20th century, right? Do, is this a thing you want to do? Um, and these large publicly held companies suddenly realized they had a problem that they thought they could kind of disavow because it was two links down the supply chain from them, right? But they could no longer disavow. They had to own it. They had to take it. Um, and uh, these Immokalee tomato pickers with their allies now um, then instituted with both the fast food chains and the supermarkets uh, the country's first uh, fair food uh, program uh, for, for this kind of work. And, and so now the coalition of Immokalee workers, you can go look them up on the internet, are this signal example um, of a group that emerged out of nowhere, that organized and created power out of thin air, that changed the game, the story, and the equation of power in their sector of the economy that have also given hope to lots of other people in other parts of a service economy who maybe not to slavery extent, but to, in other ways are getting exploited um, out of view of the national 
uh, uh, you know, media, um, they are just one example, right? And I, I start the book with them because really, you know, one of the most common things you'll hear among people like us who are gathered here today is, I'm too busy. I'm too busy to get engaged in civic life. I, I, you know, I got my kids or my grandkids or my job is to, you know, da, da, da. Um, uh, and basically when you look at the tomato pickers of Immokalee um, and you look at what they did and were able to do, um, there is literally no excuse for anybody in this room not to be showing up at, a, at an order of magnitude more than we currently are in civic life. If they could do it, anybody can. Um, and if they could get fluent in power and start reading those sources and conduits and start strategizing around them um, and start you know, deploying media power and social norms pressure and, and the money power ultimately of boycotting and shaming these corporations, um, then we can too on other on other issues that that matter to us, and I think that's. that's yeah, let, what's let's happened. just talk a little bit about some other issues. Yeah. I mean, there there may be no example of radical change in human history than what we've seen in gay rights over a relatively short period of time. What are the lessons from that you see from that movement, and maybe now bring it in even now into the context of say, you know, bathroom bills and sort of competing bathroom bills, and how people are organizing for results, whether it's, you know, whether the words appropriate words are left and right, but from different sides of of that. I think the two. I, I agree. First of all, that you know, gay rights, marriage equality is one of the great is in that pantheon of great libera American liberation movements uh, th th that you can put in that roster that goes back to, that goes back to our founding, right? Um, but what I would say you can learn from this movement in particular right now is two things. Number one, um, it is having a long game in mind, right? And, and we are a, uh, particularly under this president, we, are, we operate on a Twitter metabolism, right? And, and, and we want results now, we want change instantly, we want to see you know, uh, th things measurable in data terms today. Uh, but the marriage equality movement uh, unfolded over decades, right? It was seeded over decades of activism. Um, and uh, it involved some people who were impatient radicals who wanted change now, and then other people who were legislators working patiently inside the system um, to first try to move toward anti-discrimination bills, then try to move, uh, uh, you know, to extend that to housing and other environments, then try to move to floating the idea of civil unions, then try to move to get one liberal state or another to try thinking about marriage equality, and then, you know, uh, but it took this kind of patient, long-game strategy. That's number one. Uh, but number two, uh, well, the greatest lesson of the marriage equality movement and success, I think, is this, which is it is that norms precede law. Norms precede law, right? So now that the Supreme Court has agreed that marriage equality is the law of the land, and so, some states have as well, like my state, Washington, by referendum, um, you can say, well, that's the, that's the marker. But the marker wasn't the Supreme Court decision. The marker wasn't referendum 74 in Washington state, right? Those things merely ratified what had already invisibly and tectonically had begun to shift in social attitudes, in norms, right? And norms are, you know, and, and when norms shift like that, it's sort of, uh, well, it's not sort of, it's exactly the way, like the, the, the way that uh, Ernest Hemingway once described having gone bankrupt, which is gradually, then suddenly, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then that's how it happens, right? I mean, norm shifted, people 
uh, Will and Grace is on TV in, in the 1990s, and people get comfy with the idea of gay friends, gay roommates, gay relationships. Um, then people start, it becomes more okay to talk about your family member uh, who's gay and is in a relationship. Then it becomes okay uh, to think about uh, how your congregation uh, or your community group is going to welcome them. Then it becomes like the question of what's okay is the question of social norms. What's okay? Right? And there is no, generally speaking, outside the Ten Commandments, there is no kind of God-given notion of what's okay. Right? We define what's okay. 30 years ago, gay marriage was not okay. Right? Being gay in public out was not even super okay. Right? Um, and so you think about a guy like Barney Frank um, and, and the way in which he was one of those inside game grinders working at the system, changing legislation by kind of increments, um, while you had folk, folks like ACT UP and Dan Savage, and you had people, um, artists like Tony Kushner, kind of coming at it from a more impatient, radical, out, it, it required all these things in the long term, but what they were doing was shifting norms so that eventually law would catch up. What, what, what about an issue like guns? And you give examples on both sides of the gun issue here that I think are quite instructive. So guns actually is one where the tug of war is happening right now, right? Um, uh, on the gun rights side, um, if you think about st uh, how effective the gun lobby has been in states uh, in popularizing and normalizing the notion of open carry, right? That you can and should, under law, be allowed to openly carry not just a sidearm, but a long firearm, right? Uh, um, uh, in Texas, and, that, and now it's a you know, spin-off of that is the campus carry movement, that you should be allowed to openly brandish firearms on college campuses, right? Um, this is a movement that, that gun activists have been very patiently strategic about laying out and executing, um, and again, at trying to change norms as well as law at the same time, right? And so, um, and so you'll see images of um, guys shopping at Kroger in Texas, you know, with an AK-47 slung over their shoulder, right? Um, and, uh, and to my eyes and sensibilities, that's just grossly offensive and kind of abnormal. But what they're trying to do, and I get it, is they're trying to make that seem more normal, right? And in some of those communities, it's semi-normal now, right? So that's one side of the uh, gun issue that, that, that's trying to push this. Uh, I actually, as in my in my life as a citizen, I'm one of the co-founders of an organization in Washington State called the Alliance for Gun Responsibility. That we, we formed right after Sandy Hook. We were a group of citizens who said, "We got to do something. The Congress is going to do nothing." Um, and here in our state, maybe with our Democratic legislature, we can do something. And ultimately, the NRA actually owned enough Democrats in our legislature um, that we couldn't even get it through the the, the legislature. Uh, but fortunately, we are a uh, we are a state with direct democracy. So we put a measure on the ballot, um, and uh, in, in 2014, we became the first state in the union to pass by vote of the people background checks uh, for gun purchases. Right? In doing that, we also were pushing a fight on social norms. It wasn't just about kind of making the rational case for gun policy. Our our the name of our organization is key: Alliance for Gun Responsibility. And what we're trying to say is this larger message of we're not trying to stample, st uh, trample on gun rights. Gun rights are there. We respect those rights. But every right for everybody who's not a toddler, every right comes with responsibilities. And if we're going to be a grown-up society, we have to couple um, reasonable firearms rights with reasonable firearms responsibilities. And background checks on felons and 
um, and, and people who are dangerous to themselves or others uh, is, a is the bare minimum of responsibility, right? That was an argument, a social norms argument that won with 64% in our state, right? Um, so, so, but these things are happening at the same time and remains to be seen depending on how you show up and, and, and how we all show up um, which way it's going to go in this country. You know, the, the challenges to organize around these issues, to create narratives around these issues, seem so overwhelming to people. You've been on a book tour now for a while. I assume you've probably gotten questions, in some cases, from members of an audience about their own situation and what your advice would be in terms of getting power when they feel powerless. You know, it could be, you know, a kid in the back row saying, although might not be, might be afraid of saying it uh, in public, you know, I'm a dreamer and I'm about to be deported. What do I do? Or, uh, you know, a woman in the back saying, you know, I have a 16-year-old child with a rare disease. I don't think she's ever going to be able to get a job. And I'm terrified that because of her pre-existing condition, she's never going to get insurance. So these are individuals who feel desperate, alone, unconnected, powerless. What do you say to those two people? The key adjective you just said was alone. And I think the key remedy, the beginning of the remedy, is to remind every one of these people that they are not alone, right? So let's take the dreamer, the undocumented teenager right now. Um, for many years, dreamers lived, uh, well, undocumented immigrants lived wholly in the shadows, right? Um, but only in the last half decade plus or so um, have there, has there been a movement where undocumented immigrants, and particularly young undocumented immigrants who might have qualified for the DREAM Act, um, which was a proposed piece of legislation that would have um, given them a pathway to citizenship had they gone into the military or gone to college. Um, again, that kind of social contract uh, implied about be a contributor to community um, and we'll make a pathway uh, into the circle for you. Um, these dreamers decided in, the first, uh, in twos and threes and then in large numbers to come out, right? And the coming out is quite analogous to the coming out of our gay and lesbian and transgender friends and family members. It is a thing that when you do alone, it's super scary. And when you do with just one other person, it's less scary, right? It's less than half as scary if you do with just one other person, right? Um, a, a friend of some of ours here in this room, a guy named Jose Antonio Vargas, um, who some of you have heard of. He's probably, probably the most famous undocumented person in the United States because he's a journalist, a Pulitzer Prize winner, um, but he came out as undocumented in a cover story in the New York Times magazine. You may not realize ago. this. We were approached not that long ago about whether the Aspen Institute could hire him yes. as an undocumented. Yeah. And, and you faced a set of moral quandaries and choices there. But Jose um, said, here I am, again, back to the idea of, here I am with a big pile of capital. I'm well known. I'm connected. I'm a Pulitzer Prize winner. Like, I'm pretty safe. Right? I'm, if, if, they, if anybody comes after me for deportation, it's going to create this unbelievable firestorm. Right? And so what am I going to do with that pile of capital? He decided to circulate it. He decided to use his reputational capital to start helping other undocumented people organize, come out of the shadows. Um, he created an organization called Define American, um, which is about reconceptualizing our debates around immigration and American identity. Um, so that's for that dreamer, the, the, the person who's got a rare disease or a disability um, who's feeling particularly vulnerable right now as um, our healthcare system uh, goes through the potential upheaval it's going to go through. Um, you know, I think there's two things about that. One, um, you know, I tell a story in the book actually from New Zealand, uh, a woman named Robin Twemlow who, um, uh, whose daughter has Tourette's syndrome. 
um, and who, like many parents of children with Tourette syndrome, felt A, alone, and B, completely exhausted and beleaguered um, by the management and care of their child with this, uh, with this condition. Um, and what saved her literally was just putting out, writing a letter to the editor of her newspaper in Christchurch, New Zealand, um, basically saying, hey, is there anybody else out there dealing with this? And the flood of responses that she got from not just her town but around the country led her to create the New Zealand Tourette's uh, organization, which then became the first advocacy and organizing entity um, for folks with that condition, advocating with their legislature uh, and parliament there um, for protections and benefits and policies in schools and public institutions that wouldn't disfavor uh, people with Tourette's. Uh, but even more than that, it was a way for them to build power, right? Um, now, here in the United States, if you think about the context of you know, the end of the Affordable Care Act, potentially, and stuff like this, um, it's not only about kind of creating an association of people with your condition, um, it's then thinking about how you mobilize uh, power, story power, and all these other forms of power to pressure uh, lawmakers uh, uh, to, to not go the way that they, they might go. And that's, that's happening right now. Right? I, I put low odds, actually, on uh, Trump care as uh, uh, Trump, something like Trump care may pass, um, and it will, it will, even if it did, it will then create a backlash of a sort that will wipe Trump care off the map um, and will solidify the protections uh, that uh, Obamacare uh, tried to institute. I, I really do. Now, again, that's cold comfort to somebody who gets caught in the window of time where Trump care is the law of the land. I don't mean to be dismissive of that, but again, in the semi-long view of things, um, if, if that overreach happens, there will be a counter-reaction that I think will be quite powerful. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Browse our archive of shows on iTunes. There, you can subscribe and download your favorite episodes. You can also find us on Google Play, NPR One, Sirius XM's Insight Channel, or your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Now, here's the rest of today's conversation featuring author Eric Liu and Aspen Institute Executive Vice President Elliot Gerson. As is as very evident just from our conversation and certainly from the book, you, you personally are on the progressive side of the spectrum. I mean, you decry stagnant wages. You decry how benefits have flown overwhelmingly to the top 1%. You decry what you see as grossly excessive CEO pay. Yet the book speaks to all sides. And I think just recently on your book tour, you spent, I think, a full day with Glenn Beck. What was that like? <laughs> Uh, let me t I'll tell you about Glenn Beck in a second, but let, let me just say first, actually, on this larger point about, uh, I think it's important uh, when you're talking about citizenship and civic power to not pretend you have no views. A lot of this stuff in civics, and, you know, uh, you, you, there's this pretense to neutrality that is, that is you know, in Trump, as Trump would say, it's BS, right? Um, I think it's far healthier to say, yes, I, I have progressive views. I have been, I, I'm a Democrat. I've worked for a Democrat. Um, uh, just like, you know, I'm a baseball fan, and I grew up in New York, so I'm a Yankee fan. Um, but even though I was a Yankee fan, I hate the Red Sox. At the end of the day, or at the beginning of the game, 
if the game itself is sick, if the underlying game is unhealthy, if it's corrupt, if it's overrun by steroids, if there's you know, something going on here, then it is in our shared interest as Yankees and Red Sox fans to get that underlying game healthy again. Right? And that's how I feel about where we are in the country right now. And indeed, in our work here at Aspen, and in my work at Citizen University, and in this book, I make quite active common cause with folks on the right, both the reform conservative right, the libertarian right, um, not the alt-right, I will say, um, but you know, uh, people on the right who are sincerely interested in activating bottom-up citizen power um, for a greater good. Uh, and, and so we've played with and collaborated with co-founders of the Tea Party. Uh, we work regularly with folks at the American Enterprise Institute, the Reagan Library and Foundation, right? Um, uh, not because we agree on issues. Again, I'm quite explicit about how I will disagree with them on stuff. But as grown-ups, we can say, we can disagree on that, but we've got to first get more people more interested in getting more literate in power and flexing their own muscle in their communities. And again, right, what's happening right now in the country is a flipping of roles. You, because of the Trump administration, you have a lot of people on the left who are suddenly rediscovering the, the beauty and the power of federalism and decentralized governance. <laughs> right? You have a lot of people on the left saying, yeah, get out of the way, feds. You know, let our city and state do its own thing. Right? States' rights. Uh, uh, so it's an interesting moment like that um, for cross-ideological conversation. Uh, with Glenn Beck, um, I, I spent a day recently uh, with him. It was actually the second time I've spent a day with him. Um, one of uh, uh, my colleagues uh, uh, through the work at Citizen University, a guy named Matt Kibbe, um, who used to run Freedom Works here in town, big Tea Party guy, now runs a kind of a millennial-targeted um, libertarian organization called Free the People um, that is trying in very cross-partisan ways to get millennials to think about libertarianism. Um, uh, he introduced me to Glenn. Um, and some of you may know, um, uh, before you, uh, to, to, to somewhat complexify the picture some of you might have of Glenn Beck in your head right now, in, in the last couple of months, maybe a year, he's been a very interesting process, public process of, I wouldn't say metamorphosis, but of responsibility taking. He's gone to a lot of big forums, especially in the mainstream liberal media, um, saying, I want to take responsibility for how much I contributed to the toxification of our politics in a way that gave us Donald Trump. He was no fan of Donald Trump during the primaries and during the election, right? So he's saying, I'm a big, and between the election of Trump and the fact that he's become a grandfather recently, he basically was asking himself, like, is this what I want to be known for? Is this the legacy I want to leave, right? And so he's been on this kind of public process, um, and so it was a very ripe moment for us to converse. And it was something pretty remarkable, actually. The, the first time I spent with him was just getting to know him. No cameras, no microphones. Um, and we built enough trust there that he said, come on back and I'll have you on my TV and radio show um, and spend the day here. Um, and so I did a few weeks uh, later. Um, and here's the key. And I think this is super important for our very divided moment right now. Um, we argued about transgender bathrooms. We argued about the minimum wage. We argued about the ACA, right? But before we got to those arguments, um, the first 75% of our conversation um, was on a different level. And it started because I was describing um, how I think so much of our politics, left and right today, are just fear-driven, right? I mean, people on the left today are certainly afraid of what this administration might do, but people who voted for this administration did so in part out of fear and a sense of loss and, and anxiety and danger. And so, so, and, and so I was talking about fear in this general way, and then Glenn just went straight to the heart, and he looked at me and he said, what are you afraid of? 
And my first answer was still kind of political like that, right? You know, I'm afraid the republic is in peril, blah, 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 right? And he's like, no, 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 what are you afraid of? And then I kind of went deeper, and I just said, you know, uh, Glenn is a person of faith, he, he, uh, and I said, you know, I wasn't raised in any faith tradition, uh, but uh, my father died when I was pretty young, when I was 22, and all my adult life, basically, um, I have lived in fear that life is completely random and meaningless, meaningless and that nothing adds up and that it's just, you know, all of our striving in the end can just poof, go to dust. Like that's, a, that's both a fear and a motor force for me, um, uh, but, I, but I don't have great channels for that in terms of faith. I channel it into, into my civic religion, right? And, and I said this to him, and as I said this, Glenn Beck, um, he, he teared up. And it just opened a channel for him. And he started talking about his very complicated relationship with his father. Uh, he grew up actually near Seattle and uh, growing up there and how um, his family dynamic led him to ultimately do the things that he wanted to do to find his voice in the media, to kind of find an identity outside of what he had kind of grown up with. And it just, the bottom line is it humanized our whole thing, our whole conversation, right? Um, so that later on when we disagreed sharply about bathrooms or about the minimum wage, um, it was no longer possible for us to demonize each other, right? Um, and it was no longer possible just to say, you're a bigot, you're an idiot, you're a fool, you're a whatever. Like, uh, I could feel him. Um, and we have this heart connection, actually, right? Cheesy as that sounds. And I think that, um, that I saw a lot of that in the country. Uh, this is the 12th of 12 weeks where I've been uh, on the road for the better part of most of those weeks. And um, and not just kind of big cities, but I was in Scranton, Pennsylvania on Monday and, um, you know, small, small towns. And um, I, I think the people are not nearly as, um, A, polarized, but also B, kind of practiced in polarization uh, as politicians are. The people are still willing um, to uh, open their hearts and learn power in ways that allow them to kind of do stuff together. You know, you know, and obviously what you're saying is so much at the heart of the whole Aspen idea and what we try to do in so many contexts. I see Dan Glickman in, in the second row nodding with respect to this and all the work we do with members of Congress, again, is is to bridge this divide by showing where there is the common interest and, and to stop demonizing, and we all think that that work is so incredibly important. What about all those young people um, who think that activism is retweeting something or clicking, and the notion of actually you know, going out and protesting or marching or, heaven forbid, voting uh, is, is not what they want to do? So I think this is a phenomenon not confined only to the young. Um, I, I think there are uh, tons of Americans who, um, who, who are engaging in politics through social media and technology. Uh, and while there's some good to that, I mean, we are, I suppose, potentially more informed than we might have been a generation ago, or at least more instantly updated uh, than, than we were a generation ago. Um, I, I think the greatest lesson of our political moment right now um, is that um, the, if you stay only in the digital, you fail as a citizen. Um, whether it's just retweeting or what's called, you know, uh, you know, you know, kind of online activism is necessary but completely insufficient. Uh, and what we've got to do to revive the body politic and revive civic life right now is to use to, 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 to use digital means for analog ends, right? At the end of the so one good example of this actually there are two good examples of this from the from the right and the left. 
uh, rewind a few years ago, the Tea Party. The Tea Party used social media and technology uh, to organize and mobilize. They use old-fashioned technologies like conference calls, you know, multi-hundred, multi-thousand person conference calls. When, you know, ultimately, the Tea Party, yes, did get co-opted by big money and became more astroturfy than grassroots. But in its origins, it was real. And in those origins, it was real because technologies of uh, communication enabled it to spread incredibly rapidly, right? A out of that big bang moment of uh, reaction resistance to the bailouts and the kind of federal role in, in the Recovery Act. Um, and, and so, but what the Tea Party remembered and knew was that it's not enough just to get people liking uh, petitions or clicking on things or sending emails, that what they needed to do was to use those technologies to get people to see each other face to face. Right? And then to apply pressure on their lawmakers and other influentials face to face. Right? Um, and, uh, and so flip, fast forward a few years, the mirror image of that is unfolding before our very eyes, indivisible. Um, for, and not everybody may know the indivisible movement, but what this is is a movement that started right after the election where four young people, ex-congressional staffers uh, in their late 20s, wrote a 26-page Google document that just gave you an insider's guide as a former staffer to how to apply pressure on your member of Congress, right? Something that Dan, you know, as a former member of Congress, like, um, you know, you could also write such an insider's guide. Like, but how, how to not just send the email that goes into the ether and, and maybe a week later gets a canned form response, but how to find the right person in the staff, how to go to the right town meeting, how to ask and frame the right questions, how to not let them escape your scrutiny, right? Um, and this, this Google document, uh, as they wished and hoped, went totally viral, right? Thanks to social media, Twitter, Facebook, everywhere else. Millions of people shared it. But then what happened was something that they neither planned for or were prepared for, uh, which is that citizens, after reading this 26-page document, decided in Akron or in you know, Miami uh, or in Eugene uh, you know, or in Baltimore, decided, hey, Let's, uh, using Facebook, hey, those of you in the Baltimore area who just read this uh, indivisible document, let's meet up at this church. Let's meet up at this pub. Let's meet up at the public library Tuesday at 5, uh, and let's talk about how we're going to organize. And next time the, and then our member is back for recess, um, or uh, you know, let's figure out how we can go to their district office and mobilize, right? It became a digital tool for this incredible face-to-face -face movement that now there are 6,800 chapters around the country, in every congressional district in the country, red, blue, urban, rural, right? The four people who started this thing didn't organize this. They're not, they're not in charge of it, right? They've now kind of backfilled and they've gotten funding to create an organization that supports these chapters and, and, and connects the dots among them and trades good ideas that they figured out in Indivisible San Francisco to send over to Indivisible Chicago. But they were very explicit. We took a page out of the playbook of the Tea Party, right? And in both cases, the point was you can't stay online. You got to get people feeling each other, seeing each other, so that they can though go and then uh, see and feel um, the, the people, the deciders, right? Remember, all civic power boils down to the question: who decides? And either you're going to try to pressure and influence them, or you're going to try to become them, right? Uh, but that question of how you influence the, the notion of who decides. Uh, cannot be done wholly online. You've been talking a lot about civic power, but what about actual public power, government power, political power, and what many of us hear from so many people, and they might even get messages from books like this, that the political system is dysfunctional, Congress is utterly dysfunctional, 
I have no interest in that whatsoever. I'm going to be much more effective if I'm a, a community organizer or I'm a social entrepreneur. Uh, I won't even bother voting, and I certainly am not going to run for office myself or take a job in government. I mean, isn't that deeply problematic? <laughs> it, it is, uh, but I don't think that's going to happen. I actually think, again, the, the great uh, – my friend Rebecca Burgess from AEI um, has called this, uh, this period since the election uh, a civic Sputnik moment, right? And in just the way that – when the Russians, I mean, the Russians are always part of this, when the Russians you know, <laughs> sent up a satellite 60 years ago, actually, um, and started making Americans freak out about how behind we were on science education, this country got mobilized in a hurry to reboot and reinvest in science education, right? Um, now, uh, political circumstances uh, uh, are, are making people wake up and realize uh, just how ill the body politic is and just how much we have to revive civic education uh, but also just generally civic empowerment and civic participation, right? So I, in general, I think that's beginning to happen uh, and in, in a whole ecosystem of ways. Some are going to do it in civic social movement ways. Some are going to do it using social or even uh, for-profit entrepreneurialism. Uh, but you're right. Some are also, and I see a surge of this uh, around the country, going to do it by running for office and by getting folks to remember to vote. The result in, in the U.K. yesterday yeah, was, uh, was a lot of young people who didn't show up for the Brexit vote. They showed up showed last up, night. They right? showed up they, yesterday. As someone tweeted yesterday, like, uh, you know, the United States has provided an object lesson to uh, other countries of the price of not showing up, right? And so, uh, you know, France, Netherlands, the U.K. now, um, I think young people have been awakened. So, but when it comes to folks who might have the view you described, um, there's something really important, I think, for us to say that... Um, yeah, our system is sick. It is corrupt. And yes, voting alone doesn't solve anything, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I think it's really important to remember this. There is no such thing as not voting. Not voting is voting, right? Not voting is voting to throw your power away, hand your power over to people whose interests are inimical to your own, who will wield that power against you, and yet in your name, right? Um, and, and, and so, you know, the idea that either out of principle or out of laziness or out of disgust um, that you would not vote um, is basically you saying, please abuse me, right? I invite you, please, to take my stuff and abuse me, right? Um, and that, that message I find with young people kind of sticks because, uh, um, and, and, and they've been waking up to it. As far as running for office, um, there is all kinds of great stuff happening right now. All kinds of organizations, Rise to Run, um, others uh, that are getting young people. This is more on the progressive side than the conservative side. Young people, especially young women, um, to run for office right now. Um, and uh, I was at an event, uh, this is a progressive event, uh, last week in San Francisco called Joyous Persistence. Um, and filled with women of all generations deciding to run for office, to get engaged, to participate. And, you know, running for office doesn't, you know, I, I, it doesn't have to be United States Congress, right? Um, when I was in Scranton, um, I met a young woman who has decided to join her um, neighborhood district board, right? Uh, in, in, in every community, there is some body, um, some entity that is part of the question who decides. Um, and sometimes you have to run for it. Sometimes you run for it, but you're the only person running because nobody under the age of 70 has been running for it for years, so you just get it by acclamation, right? Um, but showing up, right? And, and, and I think that's beginning to happen. And um, I don't kid myself. It's never going to be a majority of us who run for office, who participate so fully and actively. 
But one of the main points that I make in the book um, is that it never has to be a majority of us, right? We have to remember that though we're a country that runs by majority rule, in every single case, every moment of social change that mattered, marriage equality, civil rights, abolition, women's suffrage, majority, it, majority rule is shaped by, by minority will. Right? It is an activated, awakened minority that decides to get fired up, decides to participate and persist, that ultimately over time, maybe decades, over time makes the majority bend to it. That is the story of suffrage, it is the story of guns, it is the story of gay marriage, it's the story of this stuff, right? You look, there was a great, because we're in these 50th anniversary years of a lot of milestones of the civil rights movement, um, there have been these kind of looks back. And I, I remember seeing a poll that was in the Washington Post in, the, in like mid-1960s um, uh, about how the public felt about uh, lunch counter sit-ins, about how the public felt about Freedom Summer, right? The public hated this stuff. Great majorities thought it was too disruptive, that people were moving too fast, that it was too, you know, the, the, the kinds of things that we now valorize and put a halo over and are, uh, you know, and are taught to kind of revere, marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, right? Considered criminals. Well, considered criminal. And by the great silent majority of the time, were considered uncomfortably disruptive, right? It's always a minority that decides to show up. And I think if we're, uh, if we're the ones who decide to show up, um, we're enough, uh, you know, once we're literate in, in power. I just want to thank you so much for being here thank with you, us today. Eric Liu's book, You're More Powerful Than You Think, A Citizen's Guide to Making Change Happen, was released in March. He spoke with Elliot Gerson of the Aspen Institute. Their conversation was held in Washington, D.C. as part of the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. And listen later this month for our podcast takeover at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.